This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It's Wednesday, April the 6th, 2022. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome to the Guy Benson Show, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern every weekday, coast to coast and around the world. Thank you for listening live if you can. If you can't, there's a podcast for that on demand for free. GuyBensonShow.com. GuyBensonShow.com. We are coming to you live from our nation's capital, the Tony Snow Radio Studios at the Fox News Bureau in D.C., We're just grateful that you are here with us. Lineup today is as follows. Coming up in the next hour, Alexandra DeSanctis of National Review. She will be here. In our final hour today, U.S. Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, up for re-election this cycle, also a member of the Judiciary Committee in the Senate. We will get his thoughts on the confirmation process for Judge Jackson that will likely culminate tomorrow in all likelihood. Also, Peter Ducey will join us, White House correspondent here at Fox News, coming up later in the show as well. As we come on the air today, I want to talk about a few different things over the next couple of segments with you. And often I come to the show equipped with a monologue that I've thought through and I've got bullet points and I know exactly where I want to go. And I will confess to you that today is unusual. It is not one of those days. I have a general sense of frustration and anger about how we discuss basically everything in this country, in our politics. To say that our discourse, if you can call it that, is dysfunctional is an understatement. Now, do I personally contribute to that problem? Sometimes, probably, yes. I'll admit that. We're not perfect. When you write multiple pieces every day and do three hours of radio every day and do three to five TV appearances every week, you are bound to say dumb or divisive or half-baked things that are not productive. And sometimes I'm guilty of that. I try to be better. And you all can judge whether or not I achieve that on a regular basis. What I am confident of is that I'm a lot better than some of the nonsense and the noise that is out there every single day in our political national conversation or debate. If you can even really call it a debate much of the time, a lot of it's just yelling and screaming Attacks back and forth. Ad hominem smears are just de rigueur. They're to be expected. 
even though ideally those would be called out and rejected by responsible people on both sides, I think it's becoming more and more the norm. So there's a few examples that I want to give of this, starting, by the way, with Senator Dick Durbin of Illinois, who is the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Maybe we'll get Senator Lee's response to this later in the show. So Durbin is trying to play the part here of a statesman as we are coming to the culmination of this Supreme Court confirmation process. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson will soon become Justice Jackson. And so he is trying to sound high-minded while criticizing his Republicans, uh, his Republican colleagues for their treatment of the nominee, which I think overall was just mostly fine. Were there, were there some bad arguments? Were there some exaggerations and distortions of her record? Was there some demagoguery? Yes. To all of those questions, yes. Is that normal? In these types of battles in recent decades, yes, very much normal. This is why I've been saying I feel like her confirmation process has been remarkably normal, which is not to say perfect or necessarily good, but kind of the way things go, not abnormal in that sense. But there's this talking point on the left that it was abnormal, abnormally bad, abnormally unfair. Lines were crossed. It was scandalous. We heard the Washington Post, and we told you about this. I had a whole monologue about it that's on YouTube. The Washington Post editorial board claiming that what the Republicans did a few weeks ago in the hearings with Judge Jackson was worse than what the Democrats and their allies did to then-Judge Kavanaugh in 2018, which to this day is one of the worst circuses spectacles I have ever seen in our politics, and I suspect that will be the case for a long time to come. So Durbin, in these statements in the Senate, was trying to admonish and scold Republicans while at least admitting or conceding that his own side, the Democratic side, isn't always perfect in this regard. Cut 17. Take one or two situations, each of them unique in their factual circumstances and to generalize in terms of her position on an issue of that gravity is fundamentally unfair unfair but we've done it too on the democratic side and i'm going to be first to admit as i look back in history there are things that should have been handled handled better when republican nominees were before us some things that should have been handled better that is certainly one way of putting it senator durbin Now, I happen to agree, actually, with part of what he said there at the beginning. I think you had some Republican senators cherry-picking certain decisions from Judge Jackson and making it seem like she was way out of the mainstream on some of these sentencing guidelines and rulings that she made. And look, I think some of those cases and some of those decisions that she made from the bench were concerning and certainly fair game to ask questions about. And the fact that they're like, oh, no, how dare they question her on her record as a judge? That is like 101 basic stuff that you have to ask a nominee if you're vetting her for a lifetime appointment to the highest court in the land. And you compare that to what they did to Kavanaugh, the type of questions that they asked, the things that they dredged up or bought into credulously. 
to try to take him down personally. It was night and day, although they're claiming it's day and night, just the complete other way around, which blows my mind. That doesn't mean that they weren't, in some cases, distorting her record to try to make a political point. We had Andy McCarthy on this show, very conservative, a trusted voice on this show, a longtime federal prosecutor who knows what he's talking about on this stuff. He came on this show. He wrote a piece at National Review explaining why he thought some of those attacks from Republicans against Judge Jackson were smears. And he gave specific examples why. And we wanted to have that conversation and listen to him because he's an expert who's gone through this stuff in his career over the course of many years. He holds credibility with me, which is why I haven't sort of stampeded off with this talking point about Judge Jackson and her record. Look, I don't love her record. I won't love her jurisprudence. My guess is she'll be a progressive liberal on the court. I won't like that. I'm a conservative. But that's different than saying, oh, she's like a consistently a pro-child porn, pro-pedophile jurist or whatever some of the more wild talking points have been. Republicans in the Senate weren't quite that harsh for the most part, but they pursued those points pretty aggressively. And Durbin here is objecting to it. But he says, OK, well, look, we, we did, we've uh, done some of that maybe on our side. There were some things looking back maybe we could have handled better with Republican nominees. Really? Like, for example, the time that you and all of your colleagues, Senator, on the Judiciary Committee, every single one of the Democrats in 2018 on the Judiciary Committee got together along with Chuck Schumer and demanded that Brett Kavanaugh have his nomination withdrawn following the delusional accusation of serial gang rape against him from a lunatic woman and her now imprisoned lawyer? Would that be one of the things that could have been handled differently or better, Senator Durbin? And he's just sort of trying to say, oh, to be sure, some things have happened. Mistakes were made. But now back to the Republicans. Well, yeah, we all said Kavanaugh should not be on the Supreme Court because of a totally, totally baseless gang rape charge. Oops, LOL. Moving on, our bad. Just the quick whitewashing of what happened in 2018 is amazing. Although I will say I prefer Durbin's whitewash there, which at least acknowledges fleetingly that perhaps something untoward happened. I prefer that to the powerful gaslighting from the likes of the Washington Post editorial board trying to sit there and tell the rest of us that what Judge Jackson has endured in the last few weeks is worse than what they participated in, the Post, by the way, in that Kavanaugh pile on, a smear about as bad as I've ever seen. So you have that. Now, one of the members of the Judiciary Committee is Senator Tom Cotton. We've defended Cotton a number of times. He's been right on some big things and gotten torn apart by the left. They really do have some sort of uh, next level derangement for him. It's not quite Trump or DeSantis level, but it's it's getting close to that area code, that zip code. They've been very mad at him 
when they're dead wrong, for example, on rioting, they were really mad at him when he was spreading misinformation, remember this, about the origins of the pandemic, when he was talking about the lab leak theory, and they, oh, this is so reckless and irresponsible. This man is not to be trusted. We should censor him. This is dangerous. Also part of the CCP propaganda machine, their attempt to make any criticism of the government of China equivalent to racism. Which is exactly what they would love, by the way, for us to decide in this country. Now, criticism of the CCP and the government in Beijing is not racism. It's not dangerous. It is vital. It is essential. It is true. But I digress. Cotton, in this case, is pointing out that Katanji Brown-Jackson, earlier in her career, chose to represent terrorists who were being tried. And he was attacking her for making that decision. Now, look, you can ask the question, why would a lawyer voluntarily decide to go and take on that kind of client? You can ask the question. She can answer it. We also have a system in this country where even the most heinous people are entitled to representation. It's a bedrock of our system. A lot of people have pointed out that no less than John Adams voluntarily defended British soldiers after the Boston Massacre under the same principle. Like, if it's good enough for John Adams, maybe it's okay for Katanji Brown-Jackson. And he's got his counterpoints, but I think when he made this comment in Cut 20, let's listen. You know, the last Judge Jackson left the Supreme Court to go to Nuremberg and prosecute the case against the Nazis. This Judge Jackson might have gone there to defend them. It's just a little much when we're making Nazi references and Holocaust references. You know, maybe Katanji Brown-Jackson would have gone to defend the Nazis. Look, I get the point he's making. Is that a productive point to make? Is that fair? I generally believe that invoking Nazis, as he has done here with Nuremberg, That's kind of heavy artillery, rhetorically, that should be reserved for a very limited number of circumstances where it actually applies. Speaking of China, I would say the concentration camps and the genocide in Xinjiang, that might be an area where we can have a conversation about appropriate parallels to the Holocaust or to the Nazis or what have you. Probably not in this context. That's me. Maybe I'm just, you know, a weakling, squishy moderate. But I feel like we should have better debates and conversations about a lot of different things. When we come back, I'm going to play for you what the DNC chairman said on MSNBC this morning about Senator Cotton. And again, I'm not enamored with what Cotton said. But then Jamie Harrison, DNC chair, he decided that he was going to take things up to 11. And he did it on Morning Joe. We will play you that. And I wonder if the civility police, who are very angry at Tom Cotton, I wonder if they're going to have anything at all to say about Jamie Harrison. That audio next on The Guy Benson Show. Guy Benson will be right back. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. 
From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. She was up for uh, confirmation and Tom Cotton blocked her confirmation. 835 days she waited to be confirmed Ambassador of Bahamas. And when asked why he was holding up her confirmation, he said because he wanted to hurt Barack Obama. It shows you who this little uh, maggot-infested man is. I'm Guy Benson. Back on the show, that was Jamie Harrison, the chairman of the Democratic Party nationally, on MSNBC talking about Tom Cotton and some of his actions with a nominee under Barack Obama, calling Senator Cotton, quote, a little maggot-infested man. Whoa. I know the the, uh, civility police are very busy right now policing Tom Cotton and a few other things. I'll get to that later. But can they spare a moment to be concerned about that kind of rhetoric coming from the chairman of a major party, maggot-infested? There's some ugly history to phrases like that, I would note. I will say kudos to Mr. Harrison, though, for actually showing up in New York for the interview, as opposed to hiding in his house, which is what he's been doing for almost all the pandemic. There was that NBC News story about how there was big friction within the party because the guy was like a COVID paranoiac and wouldn't go do his job. I guess they could coax him to New York to go do that interview to show up and call a U.S. senator a maggot-infested man. He went on and cut 19. He does not deserve to have that pen. He doesn't deserve to be in the United States Senate representing the good people of Arkansas. He doesn't deserve and doesn't know. And Joe hit the nail on the head. He put his hand on the Bible, took an oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States. And he uses it as a play toy. That is the Republican Party that we see today. It is a party built on fraud, fear and fascism. Well, Tom Cotton also took an oath to protect and defend the Constitution of the United States when he went and served abroad and put himself in harm's way. I don't know if that's part of what Jamie Harrison has done. He's been hanging out at his house and in studios, TV studios in New York. You can correct me if I'm wrong about that. I don't recall that being part of his bio. But he wraps up this little rant about the maggot-infested man— Tom Cotton, by saying the Republican Party is built on fraud, fear, and fascism. Fascism. You know, object to that one, anyone? Or is that just the right wing's turn to be angry about a left wing thing that was said? And that doesn't really matter because what really matters is what the right wing's saying. On that score, another double standard about the Florida law we've been discussing and the word grooming. I want to tackle that straight ahead. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Row. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my <laughs> name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share.
It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. Thank you for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com every day for all of your program needs, including the free podcast on demand. That's GuyBensonShow.com. And by the way, before I move on to my next point in this stream of consciousness over the course of multiple segments, just about how annoyed I am about how terrible our political debates are in so many ways. I did look up during the break just to make sure I had my facts straight. Indeed, Jamie Harrison, the DNC chairman, does not have any military service in his biography. That's not something that he has chosen to be a part of, and that's fine. Neither have I. doesn't mean that he can't weigh in on any number of subjects. But when he goes on national television, as he did this morning— and calls Senator Tom Cotton a maggot-infested man who represents a party built on fascism and suggests heavily that Tom Cotton has violated his oath to the Constitution, I think that that's really gross. It's especially gross, even though I actually disagree with some of the things Tom Cotton has been saying in the context of the Supreme Court fight. And I disagreed with him publicly on the show today. Right, so I'm not just guns blazing defending to the hilt every single thing Tom Cotton said, but to then respond, as the party chairman did for the Democrats this morning, I think is over the line. More over the line than anything any Republican senator said in the hearings about Judge Jackson. Senator Cotton was involved in a very successful and underway in his very successful legal career. When 9-11 happened, he left his legal career at the time to go put on the uniform and serve. He had a combat tour in Iraq. He had a combat tour in Afghanistan. He won a Bronze Star Medal, a combat infantry badge, and an Army Ranger tab, among other things. That's what Tom Cotton put on the line to protect this country. And I think to just blithely and casually attack him and slander him as a maggot-infested fascist who's basically betrayed his oath to the Constitution, that is well beyond the pale from someone who's basically been a career political operative like Jamie Harrison which is what he did, the DNC chairman. I have to clarify who he is because he's not really a household name. He's been in COVID hiding for two and a half years or whatever it's been. But that's what he came out of hiding to say on MSNBC this morning. And all the people who've been clutching their pearls about the things said to Judge Jackson during her hearing or the thing that Senator Cotton said in his speech and all these other things, and then, oh, Look at this rhetoric. Look at what the Republicans are doing and what they're saying. Have they no shame? Then this type of thing gets said. And many of those voices just fall silent. Which brings me to another, I would say, element of our dysfunctional debate that has really been bothering me on multiple levels over these last few days. We have talked on this show about the law in Florida, the parental rights law, the LGBT-related law that passed and was signed by Governor Ron DeSantis. I asked Governor Ron DeSantis about the law in our interview last week. If you missed it, it was on Tuesday's show of last week. Check it out on the podcast, GuyBensonShow.com. It was, I think, a really good exchange. 
I pushed him on the law, specific parts of it, because I agree with some of its major provisions. I agree that a lot of the things being said about it and the protests against it, a lot of that was rooted in misinformation and unseriousness and inaccuracy. I agree that kids K through three should not receive instruction on sexual orientation or gender identity in class. And most Americans, by the way, are on that same page with me. However, I did have some concerns and still do about the law, specifically some of the vagueness within the law and some of the language. And I had a good, respectful back and forth with DeSantis. He clarified a few things from his perspective. That was welcome and helpful, but I still have some of those misgivings. And I've been very public about them, and I've been criticized for them. I've been criticized on the right by not supporting the law completely and raising objections to it, serious objections to it, based on close readings. And I've been attacked from the left and the gay left for being too nuanced, maybe reading the bill too closely, not just coming out with a bazooka and blasting out the talking points, don't say gay, or whatever it's going to be. Oh, I'm a disloyal gay person because I'm not adopting all of their talking points and the frantic, frenetic attitude with which they pursue those talking points and amplify those talking points, a lot of which are BS. So I get that I'm probably not doing myself any favors sitting here on this show talking even more about this issue. And yet I'm going to do it because I don't apologize for supporting the parts of it that I support. I don't apologize for having the concerns and opposition that I have for the reasons that I've stated and laid out. What does this have to do with our broader conversation? Well, right now, it is all the rage on the left and in journalistic circles and sort of especially like blue checkmark social media. People are very concerned, very concerned about some people on the right attacking or criticizing opponents of the Florida law as, quote, groomers. Now, let's just be clear. Grooming... Sexual grooming of children is a real thing. It is a real and evil phenomenon. And basically it means uh, you know, a predator tries to win the trust of a kid to then get close and get into proximity of that kid and have that person's trust to then sexually exploit the kid. That's what grooming is. It's real. People do it. They commit crimes And they should be prosecuted and shunned. It is grotesquely unfair. I fully concede and agree. Grotesquely unfair to characterize opponents of the Florida law broadly as groomers. That's one of the talking points that's out there on the right in some elements of the right. And I see the uh, backbencher crazy woman from Georgia, said that some of the Republican senators who are going to support Judge Jackson's confirmation, they're pro-pedophile based on her record. That's just, that's nuts. That is far beyond what is acceptable 
discourse in my book. I also think to just going back to casual smears, saying, oh, well, if you're against the Florida law, you're a groomer or you support a grooming status quo that this bill or this law prevents. No, I think the better critique is you're in favor of indoctrination, especially if you're not willing to support the K through three provision. You are saying, yeah, I think schools should indoctrinate very young kids on gender identity stuff without their parents consent or knowledge. I think that's bad enough. I think that is a fair hit. And by the way, I saw some polling via Politico's Mark Caputo. The Florida Republican Party did some polling, and they asked this simple question based on the law. Should students in kindergarten through third grade be taught about sexual orientation in the classroom by their teachers? You know, I know you want to know what the outcome was. Eighteen percent of Floridians said, yes, they should. Seventy four percent said, no, they shouldn't. Now, that's not the only part of the bill, which is why I've raise the concerns that I have. But that part of the bill has become a central fight in addition to the stupid don't say gay slogan, which is not true. The idea that what you can't say gay in Florida, you can't say gay in schools, that's just not even close to true based on what's in the actual law. This part actually is in there, this K through three component. And in this latest poll, it's 18 percent who believe that that would be appropriate for K through three students to get that type of instruction. And three out of four Floridians think it's wrong. It shouldn't happen. And Mark Caputo of Politico says DeSantis's campaign is so confident on this issue that they are musing about running Spanish and Creole language ads, accusing Democrats of wanting to teach sexual orientation and gender ID To young kids. And you've had Democrats in Florida coming out opposing the bill and not making clear that they're on the other side of this issue. So they've opened themselves up to a big, I think, potentially damaging political attack where the Republicans might run ads in English and Spanish and Creole, like three different languages saying, hey, here's what the Democrats are up to. And if this is a trap that the Democrats have fallen into, it's their own damn fault because they were so sloppy and stupid in their rhetoric about the law. And if DeSantis wants to spring the trap, well, that's politics, okay? That's politics. So I am very much on board with the point that it is not fair to call critics and opponents of the law groomers. Grooming grooming has a specific meaning, and it's just extremely unjust to try to paint with a broad brush, and tar a bunch of people with that word. So let me state for the record how against that I am. Now, the counterpoint that I've seen from conservatives, and I want to address this for a moment because I think there's a fair amount of truth to it, certainly some visceral agreement for me. What some conservatives will say, people who will defend or even use the, the groomer phrase in this context, or at least say sort of a shrug, oh, well, this is what you get. What they'll say is this. Don't say gay unto itself was a lie. They've been agitating against the Florida bill and now the law with a fundamental lie. They say routinely 
that Republican-backed bills on basically every subject you can imagine are matters of life and death. This is how they argue. And it's not just stuff like this where they say, this is going to literally kill our trans youth. So that's what they get to argue. The don't say gay law will kill our trans youth. And then the other side will say, well, that sounds like you're defending grooming. And they'll say, how dare you? We're just accusing you of being complicit in the death of children. But how dare you suggest we're groomers? Like it's a little hard to take the umbrage seriously from people who day in and day out engage in totally unhinged hyperbole and vitriol and demagoguery as a matter of course. It's how they frame everything. The Republican tax law in 2017, remember that? That was going to kill people. That was their argument. They called it Armageddon. People were going to die from a tax reform bill. Remember the net neutrality internet regulations decision during the Trump administration from Ajit Pai? That was going to kill people. A regulatory change about the internet. Death. On COVID, if you disagreed, like, hey, maybe the kids don't need to wear masks in schools. Oh, you just want to sacrifice our children for your own right-wing interests. You selfish child and grandma-killing human sacrifice proponent. We had a lot of that. Remember that? Oh, and by the way, if you had a problem about some of the stuff happening in the classrooms of your kid or not happening in the classrooms because schools are closed for a year and a half in a lot of places and you showed up to talk about it to the school board and maybe in your local school board meeting you raised your voice a little bit. What were you called? You were called a potential domestic terrorist. And that case was referred to the FBI and the Justice Department in this whole setup from the Biden administration, from the Education Department, the Justice Department. They had their buddies put out this letter referring to parents as domestic terrorists. So, yeah, it is a little difficult to take. To see how the left argues over and over and over again about everything. Oh, you oppose abortion rights? You want women to die. Oh, you don't want sexual indoctrination to first graders? Trans kids are going to die. Oh, you want to cut taxes and bring down the corporate rate to a more internationally competitive level? People are going to die. Oh, you want the government to have less of a hand on the Internet and slightly uh, take their hands off on some regulations, people are going to die. Oh, you want your kid in school and not required to wear a mask for no scientific reason? The kids are going to die. Oh, but you say grooming. And we have a five-alarm fire where the civility and rhetoric police come racing out in lights and sirens blaring. I'm against using the word groomer in this context. It's not fair. It's not right. It's not accurate. It's demagogic. Hearing complaints about demagoguery from chronic serial demagogues, I'm just not that interested in it. Hopefully, 
I have some credibility when I make these points, but a lot of people don't. I saw Eric Erickson, who's a friend we often disagree, we often agree. He was saying, in his view, the people who lie about all this stuff, lie about don't say gay, lie about you know various components of it or what have you, they deserve to be lied about. You want to play this game? Fine. You make all of your arguments on emotional lying, then we're going to make emotional lies up about you. See how you like it. And I will admit there is something appealing to that. Part of me saw that tweet and said, yeah, get him. But the other part of me says, no. If I'm going to sit here and talk for 50 minutes, as I have, about the terrible state of our national discourse and how our political debates are trash, I can't in good conscience sit here and argue the solution to the lying and demagoguery and slanders and vitriol and all of it is to just do more of it in the other direction so they get hurt as badly as they hurt us or whatever. I don't know what the best solution is. I don't. What I'll try to do is tell the truth as I see it and hope to persuade people and not rely on some of this cheap, ugly stuff. I get the appeal of eye for an eye, fire with fire, all of it, but I just don't know what that achieves except making our dumpster fire even hotter with brighter, hotter flames in the dumpster fire. And thus ends the rant. With a very unsatisfying, I don't know what the solution is. How's that? How's that for some fun talk radio? But it's how I feel. I've been thinking a lot about it. I wanted to share it with you and just put it out there. Do with it what you will or you won't. Your call. Gotta run. It's the Guy Benson Show. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I went way long in the last segment. My apologies. Middle hour of the Guy Benson Show is coming up. You don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. City in the world. Unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative. Kai Benson Show. It is a brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show, our middle hour out of three, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Very pleased and honored to have each of you here with us. GuyBensonShow.com. Later this hour, Senator Mike Lee of Utah will be here. A member of the Judiciary Committee will get his take and his thoughts on the Jackson nomination of the Supreme Court. But before we do that, let's get to a Fox News alert. The Dow sliding again today, down 143 points, closing out at 34,497. So last hour, if you missed it, you can go back on the podcast, I uncorked a bit of a rant that lasted three segments just about the state of our discourse. And I had a lot of things to say about a lot of people in different subjects, a lot of them pretty heavy duty. And it's not going to get much lighter in this particular segment because I want to welcome in Alexandra DeSanctis, who is a staff writer at National Review. She's got a book coming out in June entitled Tearing Us Apart. How Abortion Harms Everything and Solves Nothing. She's co-authoring that with Ryan Anderson. 
Alexandra, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be with you. I want to discuss something that's happened in Colorado, a new law that's on the books signed by Jared Polis, the governor out there. He's been pretty widely celebrated as a moderate Democrat. That's sort of how he's framed. And he has been less crazy on some of the COVID stuff. He's been more business friendly than some other Democrats. That's true. But a bill that he's just signed into law is anything but moderate. It's the opposite of it. And the reason, Alexandra, I wanted to ask you about it is because a lot of this to me comes back to the coverage of the way things are covered or not covered in our media. So I've seen a lot of reports today, for example, on a new bill in Oklahoma that would be a very restrictive abortion ban in that state. And we can debate whether or not that Oklahoma law is a good one or not. To me, even as a pro-lifer, I think it's a bit much. Uh, You might disagree. That's fine. We've heard a lot of coverage of the Mississippi law that the Supreme Court is currently considering, and we'll know that uh, decision of theirs coming up in a few months. We have seen multiple rounds of massive attention paid to Texas on various restrictions that they've enacted on elective abortions. You know, at the 20-week mark, that was a number of years ago. And, you know, Wendy Davis was turned into this national hero by the media. And uh, she lost and her cause was unpopular and the law stood. Now Texas has gone further in that direction with their legislation and and what is now uh, the law of the land, at least in that state. And it seems to me – this is my big preamble here – it seems to me that whenever you have a Republican governor or Republican legislature that is moving in the direction of anti-abortion legislation or pro-life legislation – At the federal or state level, it becomes a big national story that the press gets involved in. But when you see efforts going in the other direction with truly radical, I would argue barbaric laws in blue states like Oregon a few years ago and now in Colorado, it gets nary a mention at all. Number one, do you agree with the premise? And then number two, tell us about what this law entails in Colorado that was just signed. Yeah, I completely agree with with what you just said. I think the media is absolutely notorious for creating these firestorms around pro-life laws as if, you know, we're going to be set back decades and, you know, never mind that courts are going to strike down any pro-life law that a state actually manages to enact. When Texas is one of the very few uh, pro-life laws you mentioned that was actually allowed to stay in place, Uh, it's the only one I can think of off the top of my head that actively protects unborn children at at any age that's been allowed to stay in place. Um, So typically pro-life laws are are struck down immediately, and yet they get constant media attention. uh, And and these bills all over the place that are creating a fundamental right to abortion, like Colorado's new law does, get hardly any attention or they're treated as though they're kind of this normal, middle road, moderate, um, typical abortion law, when in fact they're extreme compared even to the rest of the world. Uh, we're one of U.S. is one of seven countries that allows abortion after 20 weeks. Most of Europe uh, either restricts abortion totally or allows it only up to 12 or 15 weeks. And yet when a state like Mississippi passes a 15-week bill that, by the way, was again immediately struck down in court, uh, like you said, media outlets cover it like it's, you know, taking women back decades and the most horrific thing that ever happened. Yeah, taking uh, women all turning, the way back to the horrible, horrible misogyny of modern day Europe. 
right? I mean, it's sort of a hard <laughs> argument to make, so they don't make it, right? They don't make that argument. They don't make those comparisons. You don't see infographics on the screen on MSNBC about how these laws compare to laws around the, you know, the rest of the Western world, for instance. They don't really want to have those discussions because it doesn't actually align with their narrative. It also doesn't align with public opinion on this stuff, and maybe we'll get into that. But on the second part, please tell us first about the the new law in Colorado. Yeah, absolutely. So it it essentially creates um, an explicit fundamental right to abortion throughout pregnancy, which means that uh, no matter the reason a woman can get an abortion up until the moment of birth, perhaps even during birth, because I think presumably it would nullify any restrictions on partial birth abortion, though there's a federal law against it. Um, So it it allows abortion throughout pregnancy. It explicitly states that unborn children, uh, which they describe as embryo, fetus, things like that, uh, has no rights under Colorado state law, is entitled to no legal protections, uh, nullifies things as simple, as basic as a parental notification law. So if a minor wants to get an abortion, they have to at least notify their parents. That no longer is permitted under this law. So it basically makes it an abortion free-for-all for any reason all the way up until birth. I mean, which is just, to me, revolting and extremely out there. I mean, it's not what almost anyone in America actually believes is good policy. I mean, I was looking at the Gallup numbers, and you've got a majority support for legal abortion in the first trimester, first three months. And then that number falls off a cliff in the second trimester into the 20s. And by the third trimester, it's like, you know, 11 percent or something of Americans support you know, legal abortion on demand in the last three months of pregnancy. But apparently all 11 percent of those people are elected Democrats and journalists because that is the position, their official position. And it's it's totally out of touch with the American people. It's gruesome. It's extremely gruesome. And my understanding is in this Colorado law, there are no conscious protections for people who might be involved in the process who don't want to be, uh, you know, medical professionals and that sort of thing. The other thing is to have no legal rights for anyone before they are fully born, someone could come and murder a child, a wanted child at month eight. Let's say, you know, the the father doesn't want to have a kid and decides he's going to go and take a baseball bat. This is horrible to to the woman's stomach. And that kid dies. There's no victim there. It's just an assault on the woman. There's no victim because that life, even a fully developed, viable life, has zero legal protection and can be killed by an abortionist until the moment of birth under this new law. This is really, really out there, radical stuff. And yet it has gotten almost no attention. Everyone's talking about the Oklahoma law, which, again, some of the provisions of it I don't favor as someone who is generally pro-life. That's getting all this attention. The Colorado law is getting very little. And case in point, Alexandra, I actually had this exchange earlier today on Twitter. I was sitting here in the studio before the show, and we have on in the studio Fox News, Fox Business, CNN, MSNBC. And CNN was doing a report about the Oklahoma abortion law. And they had a banner on the screen that the the subject matter on the CNN graphic was reproductive rights, which is already just – a slogan of the abortion lobby, but that's, I guess, the uh, the way that they frame it over at CNN. And you had one of their correspondents, not a commentator, not a talking head, a, a journalist, a reporter who was on the screen reporting on the Oklahoma controversy. That was the overwhelming focus 
of the segment, and there were graphics and everything. And would you like to guess where this woman was doing the report from? Uh, let's say in front of a Planned Parenthood, maybe? <laughs> no, from Denver, from Denver, Colorado. So she's a Denver-based correspondent, apparently, reporting <laughs> on a law in Oklahoma when there is a law that is quite extreme in the other direction just enacted in Colorado. She says that she, like, briefly mentioned it in passing because I was critical of this. I tweeted a screenshot of it, just the irony of it. I think this really encapsulates the systemic totally broken bias of the mainstream media on this issue in particular. It's an issue where they are most unapologetically biased. So I I tweeted that out, and she actually responded. And here's what she said. This is Lucy Kafanov, who's a CNN correspondent, again, a journalist. That's her bio on Twitter. She says, oh, no, I mentioned the Colorado law protecting the rights of women to make their own reproductive health decisions regardless of what happens at the federal level. It was a broad look at what's happening in Oklahoma and beyond. Enjoy the rest of the day, and thanks for watching, although she had a few uh, typos in there. That's what she meant to write. And, Alexandra, just to pause there for a moment, this is the CNN correspondent reporting on the extreme Oklahoma law from Colorado, which barely merits a mention because all it does is, quote, protect the rights of women to make their own reproductive health decisions. Is is that just me or is that indistinguishable framing, indistinguishable language from like a NARAL or Planned Parenthood press release? No, you're absolutely right. And this is something we see from the media all the time. I've spent so so much of my, my work at National Review just cataloging the many ways in which when it comes to abortion, most major media outlets just have no interest in covering the issue fairly. I remember one that really sticks out in my memory is when a CNN piece referred to a newborn baby as, quote, a fetus that was born, right? This is absurd language. I mean, the rest of us call that a a newborn, right? It's not a fetus that was born, uh, but they're trying to just kind of support in any way. Well, actually, can I just just, just fact check you, Alexandra? Technically, you and I are both fetuses who were born. Right. That is true. true. We were we are that we're also (laughs) just been a few years. Right. Isn't that the (laughs) we are also clumps of cells. Just um, uh, too many cells, I would argue, uh, after after a (laughs) night at a restaurant. But but not to make too much light of it, but you have to. It's such a it's such a tough subject. But please finish your thought. No, it's absolutely absurd. And we see this all the time when it comes to abortion, no matter the topic. And and that that quote I, I mentioned, it was in reference to the born alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which didn't even restrict abortion at all, mind you. It just required doctors to care for infants after they're born. And yet, of course, there was a media firestorm as if this was some restriction on women's rights, as they would put it. So I think you're absolutely right. And the idea that someone would be in Colorado acting like the Oklahoma bill is, is the point of the day is crazy, because like I mentioned, the Oklahoma bill is going to be struck down, you know, as much as pro-lifers might wish that it's going to stay in place, at least until the Supreme Court undoes Roe v. Wade, undoes Planned Parenthood v. Casey. Those laws are going to get struck down every single time. And Colorado's, New York's, all those laws are always going to remain in place. And so the idea that, you know, Oklahoma deserves more media attention for some reason is absolutely ludicrous. Here's the last point that I'll make. I recognize that this is a very difficult subject where people have strong differences of opinion. I have many friends who disagree with me. Uh, on abortion. There are some pro-lifers to my right who think that I'm not sufficiently pro-life. I think it's important to have a respectful conversation uh, about these issues because they are very weighty. And I have my convictions and I and I make those points. 
I think it is fair to say, at least looking at public opinion and where the American people come down on this, both the Oklahoma law and the Colorado law that we're talking about are pretty far outside of the mainstream. They are they are out at the polls on this issue where I think most Americans, if informed on the provisions, would say, yeah, that is not what I support. And I have a lot of polling, for example, to back that up. The problem, and this comes back to the media, is the news media treats one of them as draconian and unimaginable and extreme, the Oklahoma law, and the other one barely registers as a blip because they don't view it as radical or extreme, or they do deep down, which is why they euphemize or ignore it because they know that it won't necessarily go well for their side. So they shade or change their coverage accordingly. And to me, it's really frustrating and hard to have an honest conversation about a difficult issue when the overwhelming majority of the news media happens to be part of a tiny fringe of the country on said question, on said issue, which is why I'm trying to frame it through a media way to not make it just a, you know, a, a brutal segment about this, in my view, brutal law out in Colorado. And that's how I want to leave it here for today. I appreciate the help breaking this down of our guest. Alexandra DeSanctis, she's got the book coming out in June. She writes at National Review if you want to uh, see her there or follow her on Twitter. That's also something that I do. Alexandra, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. We will step aside. We will come right back. Something a little bit lighter, I promise, next. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. I'm Guy Benson. This is the Guy Benson Show. Did you see this video? I just watched it during the break. So Barack Obama was back at the White House for the first time in years yesterday. I think it was the first time since, gosh, it might have been since he left the White House in 2017. So he was there, and he was there to tout the anniversary of Obamacare. I'm not going to get distracted talking about Obamacare. I'm going to talk about this video. I guess after the event broke up, President Biden was sort of wandering in the East Room of the White House looking for someone to talk to. And like no one was talking to him because they were all crowded around Barack Obama. Right. So the video begins with Biden looking sort of off. And then he just gestures like, come on, man. Like, where is everyone? He holds up both of his palms to the ceiling. Then he awkwardly turns around and the camera then pans over. You see Nancy Pelosi walking away from him. Then you see this crowd of people, some senators that you recognize, some members of Congress, uh, you know, House members. And they're all in this gaggle around Barack Obama. And he's shaking hands. He leans in and kisses a woman on the cheek. And Biden, who is the current president of the United States, is just kind of awkwardly loitering as he's being not actively shunned but ignored by this crowd of people who are excited about this big superstar in the room who is the former president of the United States, the 44th president of the United States. Not so much interest in the 46th president of the United States. 44 got a huge standing ovation and all this enthusiasm. And the thing is, the enthusiasm for Biden has always just been a lot more muted. 
And I think a lot of people saw Biden as just an alternative to Trump. They wanted Trump gone. They didn't really care who it was, so they voted for him. There wasn't the passion and the excitement that Obama generated. And I was not an Obama fan at all, but, like, the guy was talented. And you can see him holding court here at the White House in the old stomping grounds. It's like the cool kid comes back from college and all the high schoolers just ditch the current prom king to go back to the cool kid because ultimately he's the cooler kid. And the prom king's like, wah. I actually felt a little bad for Biden. I have to admit, watching this, it was a little sad. Like, you could put, like, the Charlie Brown music underneath this video. I felt a little bad for him, but not too bad. He's still the president. He's still running the country. Badly, in my view. But it was the Obama show. The Obama world. And Joe Biden, once again, was just living in it at the White House yesterday. Senator Mike Lee joins me after this on The Guy Benson Show. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. GuyBensonShow.com, our website, free podcast every day. Welcome back on this Wednesday. With us now is Senator Mike Lee, Republican from Utah. He's up for re-election this year. He's also coming out with a book in June, Saving Nine. The fight against American against the left's rather audacious plan to pack the Supreme Court and destroy American liberty, saving nine, the forthcoming book from Senator Lee. And it's great to have you back here, sir. Thank you very much, Guy. Good to be with you. It was very fun to see you and your lovely wife over the weekend as well. That was a pleasant surprise. You walk into the room and like, oh, it's it's Mike Lee. And then I was looking everywhere for Sharon Lee. And there she was. And I'm not saying that I like her better, but. I, I like her better. It's okay. It's okay, Guy. I, I, I'm, I'm very accustomed to that, and we're, we're all huge Guy Benson fans in our home. Well, I appreciate that. Let's just start big picture. you got the vote coming up here uh, in a matter of uh, hours or days on the final confirmation, up or down, on Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson to the U.S. Supreme Court. It seems pretty clear that she'll be confirmed. Looks like it'll be 53-47 in all likelihood uh, without getting into the politics of it and the whip count or anything like that, but what are your impressions of her as a nominee, and why have you chosen to oppose the nomination? All right, so th- let me start with the positives. I-, I really like her as a person. I really think she has amazing academic qualifications, and her professional qualifications uh, are impressive. The fact that she has clerked at all three levels of, this, uh, of the U.S. court system, including the Supreme Court, the fact that she has served as a judge uh, on the district court level, a trial court, and on the circuit court level, an appellate court, uh, means that if she's confirmed to this position, she will have served as a jurist at all three levels of the federal judiciary. It's somewhat unique, and that will bring important perspective. I like those things about her and many others. I will be voting against her, however, based on concerns that I have about her jurist her jurisprudence and her judicial philosophy, concerns that I can't overcome, concerns that are rooted in her own rulings and her own writings. And so there have been some people, Senator, who say that that's like an inconsistent position. It should just be about qualification. You say she's qualified. She's an impressive person. Uh, Getting hung up on the jurisprudence is uh, not fair. That's not how things at least used to be. What's your response to that? Because I feel like those days in a lot of ways – are gone. Certainly the other side has seen to that. Uh, but what's your, uh, you know, 
response or reply when someone might bring up an argument like that? Judicial philosophy and jurisprudential approach are part of the qualification. There are conditions precedent to that. And so, yes, I, I'm impressed by certain features uh, of her academic and professional background. But that doesn't satisfy. It's not like a box that you check. And as long as those things are in place, as long as she has impressive things on her resume, uh, things that she would bring to the court that could be useful and helpful, that doesn't mean that she's uh, qualified in my view. I think qualification necessarily turns on someone's approach. And the reason we focus so heavily on this is because of the immense power that judges and Supreme Court justices especially wield. They have the ability They have the job to interpret federal law, statutory law, regulatory law, and provisions of the U.S. Constitution. And so unless – and they are insulated, moreover, in doing that job from the electoral process, from public accountability. Uh, There's a good reason why we insulate judges and justices for that. We want them making independent judgments, not based on political forces. But just the same – This is why it's so important that we have a confirmation process here, because we need to know what they believe and how they approach their job as jurists, how they would approach the job if confirmed to that job before we put them on there. In the case of Judge Jackson, look, she she pays at least lip service to the central ideas of textualism, of originalism, the idea that judges should interpret statutory and constitutional provisions based on the original public understanding of the text in question. So she paid good lip service to that, but ultimately she said she didn't have a judicial philosophy. Without a judicial philosophy, it's very difficult to determine what a judge will do on the bench. The judge who's got a cluttered toolbox is going to pick whatever instrument might bring about the policy outcomes that he or she desires. And so after struggling with Judge Jackson's philosophy or proclaimed lack of a judicial philosophy, we turned to a record. Now, Democrats had relied entirely on, on her record in, in claiming that it was ironclad. But unfortunately, not only did Democrats fail to produce key documents that make up substantial areas of her record, the parts of the record that we have and that they did give us are deeply concerning. She's got a history of of ignoring the law as passed by Congress in favor of her policy decisions. In fact, she was reversed twice by the very liberal D.C. Circuit for injunctions that she placed on uh, on administrative actions taken by the Trump administration that she happened to disagree with personally. And I believe that in both of those cases, she didn't just get the outcome wrong. I believe in both cases, she lacked jurisdiction. That's deeply troubling. And she's also got this really deeply troubling record of of giving exceptionally lenient sentences, far below the sentencing guidelines, to criminals who have been charged with sexual abuse of children or child pornography charges. She even openly stated that she disagrees with with two of the enhancements in the guidelines, so she just didn't apply them. And then finally, when when she was asked simple questions, uh, she often couldn't or, 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 or would not provide adequate answers or, or, uh, or, or otherwise show her philosophy. And if these so, are yeah, I, I think that's a pretty right? comprehensive case that you've just made. I mean, you've gone through, you've made the case for why you're voting no. I think it's, it's a sound case. Other people have come to different conclusions for various reasons. I do want to ask you, Senator, to react to this. 
It's cut 17. The chairman of your committee, Dick Durbin, uh, had this to say, listen. Take one or two situations, each of them unique in their factual circumstances, and to generalize in terms of her position on an issue of that gravity is fundamentally unfair. unfair. But we've done it, too, on the Democratic side, and I'm going to be first to admit, as I look back in history, there are things that should have been handled better when Republican nominees were before us. Okay, so number one, he's been saying that, and this is a a talking point on the left, that uh, Judge Jackson was treated unfairly by Republicans. The Washington Post editorial board said uh, worse than Democrats treated Brett Kavanaugh's beyond the pale, just awful stuff. Uh, Just your reaction to that. And then his little comment at the end there, just admitting, well, you know, Democrats have done some unfair stuff, too, in the past and things should have been handled better. That's certainly one way of putting it, isn't it, Senator? It is one way of putting it, and it's one way of putting it that is absolutely wrong and disingenuous. Look, uh, to compare in any way, shape or form the way that Judge Jackson was questioned or the arguments that were made during her confirmation proceedings with what Democrats have done to Republican nominees, uh, people who have been nominated to the Supreme Court, from uh, Robert Bork to Clarence Thomas to Sam Alito to Amy Coney Barrett to Brett Kavanaugh, just to name a few, before we even get to Miguel Estrada uh, mm-hmm. or to Janice Rogers Brown. doesn't even compare. Like we, we have not engaged in the politics of personal destruction. Not one of us impugned her character. Not one of us demanded the ability to see her high school yearbooks. Not one of us accused her of, of vile personal things. We were focusing entirely on her judicial record, her judicial qualifications, her jurisprudential approach. So to compare those in any way is completely disingenuous. And in fact, to compare us to to say that what we're doing is taking one or two cases in isolation and somehow making a mountain out of a molehill is also just wildly incorrect. Reminds me of what my dad used to uh, uh, say when he referred to lawyers and people who don't like them. And say it's a it's a shame when you allow an entire profession to be disparaged on the basis of only eight or nine hundred thousand bad apples. Uh, the <laughs> point here is that Dick Durbin is dramatically understating the case. We're talking about every single child pornography case ever in front of her. Now, keep in mind, to call this child pornography, it do, doesn't even capture it. It's, just, it's not obscenity cases. This involves the commercialized product of child sex torture. That is a very serious thing. The fact that she undersentenced them in literally every case of that type that was ever brought before her is concerning, as is the fact that one of the defendants uh, brought before her, sentenced by her for these crimes, deliberately sought out and obtained images, prepubescent images, prepubescent victims uh, being subjected to this child sex torture. She sentenced them to three months the guidelines range would have put him roughly in the range of 10 years. She sentenced him to three months. That's not acceptable. And Dick Durbin he doesn't know what he's talking about if he's suggesting that these are one or two cases we're worried about here. Well, the vote is expected tomorrow, perhaps the next day, and it seems like it's a fait accompli. 53-47, that was sort of the test vote earlier. One of those nay votes, one of the no votes, is my guest, Senator Mike Lee of Utah, up for re-election this cycle. His book coming out in June is Saving Nine. 
Senator Lee, great to talk to you. Say hi to your wife for me, please. And we look forward to having you back very soon. Will do. Thanks so much. Good to be with you, Guy. Likewise. It's the Guy Benson Show. Quick break. We'll be right back. Stay with us. My trust or your trust, you know, there's so many uh, people that don't trust their spouse, and yet we've got to get on with life, and we've got a situation. I've never felt this way about where our country is and what I experienced emotionally in Ukraine, where it had not, we all talk about how divisive things are, how divided things are here, but when you step into a country of such incredible unity, you realize what we've all been missing. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, that was the voice of actor Sean Penn, famously out there on the left, appearing last night on Hannity on Fox News. So an unlikely pairing there. My dad was actually texting me. Did you see Sean Penn on Hannity? Did I read that question right? Yeah, he was there talking about Ukraine. He's been in Ukraine and talking about the unity that he sensed from the people in that country under fire, under attack by the Russians, unifying in defense of their homeland. Obviously, he was inspired by it. And that's something that I think a lot of us across the domestic political spectrum here can really respect and admire. The character of the Ukrainian people in the face of unimaginable adversity and heartbreak. So that is... A fairly cool observation from maybe in some ways an unlikely source given the venue. Meanwhile, the reality continues to be extremely disturbing over in Ukraine. The Russians, yes, are losing militarily, which is great. We had Lieutenant General Keith Kellogg on the show talking about how in his mind, in his estimation, the Russians have already lost the war in a number of ways. But the war has shifted to the east. The Russians are looking to win slash consolidate some of the gains that they've actually made in the Donbass region and in the south and maybe try after overwhelming the Ukrainians in those areas to figure out some sort of a peace deal where they get to keep more of the country that they have bitten off in this invasion. Nowhere near what they were intending to achieve which was to just run roughshod over the country, sack Kiev, the capital, overthrow the government, and install a puppet regime. That does not appear like it's in the cards. They've failed. The Ukrainians have warded them off, and then some, with the Russians suffering enormous levels of casualties. But right now, the Ukrainian government is urging civilians, if possible, to flee what will be a looming offensive in the eastern region. And I feel like if you are someone who is not going to stay there and physically fight the invaders, there's not much more motivation you would need to get out than what we're seeing in Bucha and the areas around Kiev that were briefly controlled by the Russians who then left behind evidence of war crimes just littering the streets, literally bodies, mass graves, just appalling. We talked about that earlier in the week. Of course, others are picking up arms and going to that area. They want to fight and kill Russians. 
They want to continue to defend their country. Meanwhile, with the West continuing to condemn the war crimes and the brutality, the United States has banned new investment in Russia, and there have been new sanctions slapped on Vladimir Putin's daughters. On the military side of things, the United States is going to send an additional $100 million worth of Javelin anti-tank missiles to Ukraine. I saw a report that with NATO and EU members planning to send tanks to the Ukrainians for this battle in the east of their country. I think the Czech Republic, there was a headline that said, this is the first country that has officially furnished the Ukrainians with tanks. And a buddy of mine on Twitter said, technically, that's not true. The Russians have given an awful lot of tanks to the Ukrainians, just not intentionally, which I thought was a pretty good line that happens to be accurate. So we will continue to follow all of this, all of these new sanctions coming in from the U.S., the G7, the EU. And I think one of the huge multi-billion dollar questions still percolating out there is, to what extent will the sanctions continue to have enough bite that it could potentially rattle the people around Vladimir Putin or hurt that economy enough that they feel like they're getting battered both on the military side and on the home front. We don't know the answer to that, what the internal deliberations and dynamics and politics necessarily look like. Although we do seem in the West and the U.S. to have remarkable levels of penetration into internal Russian discussions and communications, that is true. Then another question that we were talking about with Kellogg, also KT McFarland, do the Chinese continue to prop up the Russian government in various ways? How far are they willing to go in that endeavor? So these are some of the unanswered questions, unknowable questions that will play out and we'll be monitoring in the days, weeks, maybe months to come. The Guy Benson Show continues with our final hour coming up. When we return... I want to read at length from an investigative piece of journalism published by New York Magazine. A reporter named Sean Campbell got wind of a major purchase by the national organization, the Foundation for Black Lives Matter. A very expensive mansion bought for millions of dollars. What is the purpose of that expenditure? Was it appropriate? Is it ethical or lawful? He started asking questions. There were panicked discussions internally about damage control and even attempts, it would seem, to try to shut down his reporting. We will get into all of that when we come back. The final hour of The Guy Benson Show is straight ahead. Stay tuned. in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. 
It's our final hour here on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show from D.C. and our Tony Snow Studios at the Fox Bureau here in the nation's capital. Thank you for listening every weekday, 3 to 6 Eastern. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Podcasts always free, plus other resources right there. GuyBensonShow.com. And this hour is sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink, which is so good. They've started an ad campaign that I've seen, which is entertaining. You can check it out on their social media. You can visit them online, thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly, 21 plus only, thelongdrink.com. You can see where they are sold near you. They have been expanding pretty rapidly in the last few months. I want to read, as we begin this hour, from a piece written at New York Magazine, which is not a right-wing publication. It is, if anything, a left-wing publication. And there's an investigative story by a reporter named Sean Campbell looking into some ethically questionable decisions by the national organization Black Lives Matter. Sean Campbell, the reporter, is black. He has said that doing some of this reporting into BLM, the organization, has been difficult and painful, but he's done it anyway. And that's journalism, and I commend him. And before I get into this and start reading from the story, I just want to say what I often say about Black Lives Matter. I have maintained now for quite some time that I am strongly in favor of the proposition Black Lives Matter. I think the retort, all lives matter, misses the point of Black Lives Matter. I am on board for that. I think it's important for people who are not black to listen to that and understand that distinction. I also believe firmly that there is a crucial and enormous difference between the proposition Black Lives Matter and the organization Black Lives Matter, which I reject due to their radicalism. And they put it out on their own website, what they believe, defunding the police, abolishing the police, disintegrating the nuclear family, a whole bunch of anti-American stuff, radical social policy. That's what they advocate for. They spend their money, even when it's related to the mission, allegedly, on extremely questionable priorities. We gave the example recently where they were mobilizing in one local chapter to help bail an attempted political assassin out of jail after he tried to murder in cold blood a Jewish man seeking the office of mayor in Louisville, Kentucky. And the local BLM chapter said, let's try to get that guy out of jail. So the organization I find repugnant in a lot of ways. The idea that they're trying to purport to represent, I support. And I think it's okay for people to hold those thoughts in their head simultaneously. You can be against Black Lives Matter, lowercase, the idea, versus capital B, capital L, capital M, the organization. That is my position, at least. And I like to put my cards on the table and make that distinction crystal clear before we get into these types of conversations. Now, here's the story from New York Magazine headline, Black Lives Matter secretly bought a $6 million house. Allies and critics alike have questioned where the organization's money has gone. So we've actually seen dribs and drabs of this financial scandal for a while with allies of BLM saying, where did this money go? I mean, you had a 
huge slush fund, this pot of money that came flooding into BLM's coffers, a lot of it from donors or corporate entities who wanted to sort of pay their indulgences to the woke crowd. Let's just donate to BLM. So you've got tens of millions of dollars floating around and major questions about where that money has gone and the propriety of those decisions. For example, you have one of the founders, the New York Post reported in 2021, she had bought, what, four houses? Yes, four homes for roughly $3 million. People are like, how did that happen? And, of course, she attacked that as racism, and now she feels unsafe without actually answering the question. So this is the latest story in that chain. And I'll read from it. On a sunny day late last spring, three leaders of the Black Lives Matter movement, Patrice Cullors, Alicia Garza, and Melina Abdullah, sat around a table on the patio of an expensive house in Southern California. The women were recording a YouTube video to mark the first anniversary of George Floyd's murder, and they discussed their racial justice work and the difficulties they had faced over the year. None of the women acknowledged the house behind them. With more than 6,500 square feet, more than a half dozen bedrooms and bathrooms, several fireplaces, a soundstage, a pool and a bungalow, and parking for more than 20 cars, according to real estate listings, the California property was purchased for nearly $6 million in cash in October 2020, with money that had been donated to the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, BLM GNF. The transaction has not previously been reported, and Black Lives Matter leadership had hoped to keep the house's existence a secret. Documents and emails and other communications I've seen, this is the reporter in the first person there, about the luxury property's purchase and day-to-day operation suggest it has been handled in ways that blur or cross boundaries between the charity and private companies owned by some of its leaders. It creates the impression that money donated to the cause of racial justice has been spent in ways that benefit the leaders of Black Lives Matter personally. On March 30th, I asked the organization questions about the House. This is Sean Campbell at New York Magazine. The House is known internally as Campus. Afterward, leaders circulated an internal strategy memo with possible responses. So think about this real quick. Here you have a reporter saying, hey, you guys have a $6 million house. I have questions. And you've got obviously people internally leaking to this guy because he starts getting all of their internal deliberations about their sort of panicked PR damage control brainstorm. What do we do? This reporter is asking questions about the house. What do we do? Obviously, they were hoping no one would really sniff around or report this. The memo included this, quote, can we kill the story? That was one of their suggestions. Another one, our angle needs to be to deflate ownership of the property. The memo includes bullet points explaining that campus is part of the cultural arm of the organization. It's potentially an influencer house where they make a lot of things like YouTube videos. The memo also describes the property as a safe house for leaders whose safety have been threatened. But those two notions, the piece says, that the house is simultaneously a confidential refuge and a place for broadcasting to the widest possible audience are somewhat in tension. 
I would say that tension is a very mild way of putting it. The memo notes, holes in security story, use in public YouTube videos. So they recognize the contradiction. They're saying, oh, no, we need this place to stay because we're in danger. So it's a secret refuge. But also we're using it to make lots of YouTube videos to get as many eyeballs on it as possible. They're like, well, these two things may not quite coincide and live in the same space as each other if we want a coherent excuse. And they recognize that tension. They wrote it down explicitly in this internal memo that the reporter got his hands on. There's a board member named... Shalamaya Bowers. Bowers says in the statement that was produced that the organization had, quote, always planned to disclose the House in legal filings. The statement did not address why, if the House was primarily intended to be a creative space, relatively little content has been produced there over the course of 17 months. So they are really struggling to explain the existence and the purpose of this $6 million house that they were hoping no one would find out about, apparently. Even if everything about the House is above board, the general air of secrecy is out of step with the transparency that is expected of charitable or tax-exempt organizations. This is the New York Magazine story. The size of the acquisition could expose the group to criticism. Quote, that's a very legitimate critique, says Jacob Harold, former CEO of GuideStar and co-founder of Candid, an information service that reports on nonprofits. It's not a critique that says... What you're doing is illegal or even unethical. It might just be unstrategic. Why aren't you spending it on policy or, you know, other strategies that an organization might take to address core issues around Black Lives Matter? End quote. On this score, some of the harshest criticism of BLM GNF has come from within. Internal emails dating back to 2016 show activists voicing concern about how donations were being spent and how the organization was being run. And frustrations only continued to mount. In the fall of 2020, 10 city chapters issued a public statement rebuking the global network for its opacity. And the families of some black victims of police violence have complained they have seen little of the funds that have flowed to the movement's most visible facet. And we're talking again about tens of millions of dollars. Now, one of these women, who was one of the leaders of BLM, Patrice Cullors, this story gets into what she was doing. She used the campus, quote-unquote, house, in ways that are probably not in line with what Black Lives Matter donors intended for their dollars. Back in April 2021, so a year ago, Colors uploaded a video to her personal YouTube channel titled, I Tried Baking a Family Recipe for the First Time. Intense. The first in an intended series called Patrice Tries, in which she would attempt unfamiliar tasks. In the nearly 13-minute clip, she prepares a peach cobbler with her aunt at the campus kitchen island, making use of its soapstone countertops and high-end appliances. It's an example of how Colors acted as both the head of BLM GNF and cultivated a lucrative public profile at the same time. When she quit the organization, she said it was to focus on media deals she'd signed with a book publisher and Warner Brothers. Nonprofit experts say any apparent intermingling of resources among BLM, Colors, and outside entities might jeopardize the charity's tax-exempt status. 
Now, here's the paragraph. We're well into the story. Here's the paragraph that I find most interesting and maybe most concerning because it goes beyond just this one organization. Let me read it to you and then react right after this break. It's the Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. We're back. It's the Guy Benson Show. I'm reading from this story from New York Magazine by Sean Campbell, an investigation into some of the expenditures by Black Lives Matter, the organization. And this paragraph, I think, is very revealing. Other conversations on the BLM security hub chat, which was this group chat that they had, an encrypted group chat among their leadership, but obviously someone within the circle or some ones within the circle were giving all of this stuff to this journalist because he was able to review or monitor the conversations. He says, within these conversations, there were efforts, quote, to monitor social media for negative mentions of BLM, GNF, the organization, with members using their influence with the platforms to have such remarks removed. It's currently, listen to this, this might sound familiar, it's currently not possible to share the New York Post article on Culler's multiple home purchases on Facebook Because the site's parent company, Meta, that's Facebook, has labeled the content, quote, abusive. We saw this during the Hunter Biden story a year and a half ago, where you could not post or posts were hidden or throttled related to a story actually from the same newspaper, the New York Post, that the powers that be, the left wing powers that be, decided were too harmful for public consumption, or in that case were Russian disinformation, they told us. In this case, they say this is abuse. So you cannot share a New York Post article on Facebook because the parent company of Facebook was lobbied by BLM influencers and activists to take down those stories and deny access to that story, a news story, detailing multi-million dollar purchases of multiple homes from one of these founders and asking questions about it, that is verboten on the Facebook platform because it's, quote, abusive content. So one of their goals is to take bad press for their organization and then leverage their power and their influence with these platforms, these big tech companies, to get stuff censored. Here's one more sentence from this same paragraph in the New York Magazine story. Quote, at other points, Bowers and his associates direct a private investigator to look into detractors and journalists, including me, writes this reporter at New York Magazine, Sean Campbell. The BLM organization was using, presumably, Donations to BLM, people, and you can disagree, I would never give a dime to this organization, even if there are better racial justice organizations to back, but presumably a lot of people, you would assume just with the benefit of the doubt, people who wanted to give money to BLM wanted to do so to advance some sort of a cause, a higher cause. I think some of it was just cynical box checking by corporations saying, here, take our money, please like us. But there were a lot of people giving their hard-earned money. To BLM because they believe that there was a problem. They wanted to do something about it. And some of that money has been taken, millions of it, to buy a house like this secretly. And it seems that some of that money was also taken and used to hire a private investigator to look into journalists asking questions about how some of the other funds were used. That does not seem 
to align with the principles and goals, at least publicly stated, by this organization, does it? The story ends by quoting a few people who are social justice and racial justice activists being told about these revelations and being disgusted. Quote, Tory Russell, a prominent activist in Ferguson, Missouri, said he felt depressed when he learned about the California property. Quote, it's a waste of resources, he said. He said that the organization leaders, quote, should be somewhere in shame, end quote. A very interesting story from Sean Campbell at New York Magazine. Sean Campbell, I would imagine, is not a right-wing conservative. He's a black man himself. He did some sniffing. He got a lot of really good information, and he put this story out. And I wonder how many people connected to BLM, the organization, are currently agitating internally to get this story banned from Facebook or Twitter or you name it, because that's what they've done in the past. And I wonder if Sean Campbell still has private investigators looking into him, maybe trying to dig up dirt to sully his reputation in defense of whatever these decisions are financially. So another bullet point in a long list of why BLM, the organization in my book, is separate and distinct from the concept and the message behind Black Lives Matter. And I think the more we see behind the curtain and this rush of money that came flooding in, the more questions and more problems will arise. That's how it appears, at least so far. And my hat is off to Sean Campbell for doing some difficult and, yes, politically risky journalism on this front. The Guy Benson Show continues right after this break. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Happy hour on the Guy Benson Show. With us now, Peter Ducey, Fox News Channel's White House correspondent. And Peter, good to have you back here. Thank you for having me, Guy. I am curious about the appetite for this Hunter Biden story within the White House press corps. I know the White House doesn't want to talk about it. And they've had their spokespeople out there saying, oh, it's a personal matter. It has nothing to do with the president. That's actually not necessarily true. We also have this story about emails today or I guess a letter, a recommendation letter written by Joe Biden on behalf of one of Hunter Biden's business associates in China uh, for his kid or whatever. There seems to be at least one or two alleged tie-ins to the president. They're denying it. But now that The New York Times and The Washington Post have at least reported on the laptop its contents and at last authenticated this stuff a year and a half late, is there sort of a sense that your colleagues are trying to dig on this? Or are you the one asking most of these questions? Uh, it really depends on the day. And, you know, it was the New York Times and the Washington Post that recently confirmed the authenticity of the the laptop that we've been talking about for uh, a year and a half now. Um, but, you know, someday when when the rest of the room is asking, uh, there are a ton of questions. But then if they've moved on to other stuff like yesterday – uh, it's it's just me. And I get it because there's really limited things that you're going to get from Jen Psaki at the podium. Um, so I think there is interest, but I, I don't know how much longer people are going to continue burning uh, like the precious few seconds that you get with the press secretary on a question where the answer is just going to be that we defer to the Justice Department. 
Right. And I find that interesting because Ron Klain, the chief of staff, said on Sunday on the Sunday morning shows that the president is confident that his family acted appropriately, meaning that Hunter Biden, presumably in this case, didn't break the law. That is also unclear based on this DOJ investigation. I mean, it seems like they're trying to have it every which way. They want to say that it's not related to the president at all and any accusations. Otherwise, they just kind of ignore those even exist. They try to say, well, we'll defer over to the Department of Justice, but the president wants to assert that his son did nothing wrong. They want to say this is a private matter. You can talk to the legal counsel for Hunter Biden. This has nothing to do with us. But when the president defends his son, the White House backs him up. It just kind of seems like they want to talk about it within a certain context, exactly the way they want to talk about it and nothing more, and then pretend that they can't talk about it further. That seems like the strategy to me. Yeah, and I have asked Joe Biden, going back to 2019, almost three full years ago, how how many times he's spoken to his son about his overseas business deals. And he said he never did. He has said that his son did nothing wrong. But that was all before this federal tax investigation got opened up. We don't even still we don't even know if it's still just an investigation into the tax affairs of Hunter. It could be much bigger. It could be much narrower. We don't know. But you're right. You can't at the same time, you, you can't say we leave it up to DOJ, but hey, the president doesn't think he did anything wrong, and then claim that like potential jurors might not be influenced, including people on a grand jury right now sitting there in Newcastle, Delaware, uh, might not see that right. thing. Well, I, I like Joe Biden, and he's the president, and he said this, so that must be true. Right. If it's only the province of the Justice Department, and they don't want to put their thumb on the scale of the Justice Department— The attorney general's boss, who's the president of the United States, is both declining to comment on any details because that's DOJ, while also broadly saying effectively through the White House that his son is innocent. That would be putting a thumb on the scale. That would be on some level arguably influencing the ongoing and from what we understand expanding federal investigation. I just don't know how they feel like they can get away with that, maybe because – you're the only one persistent in asking the questions, and they can just sort of pigeonhole you as a Fox person. That might be well, their their <laughs> sort of strategy here or their calculation. Well, you know, so yesterday I asked Jen Psaki about a special counsel maybe, and she basically said there's no need because we don't we don't have anything to do with this. But the way that the system is set up right now, it's going to be hard for a prosecutor, if they find something wrong – to get to convince a jury of peers uh, that somebody with the last name Biden in the Wilmington, Delaware area uh, did something wrong. He's he's the guy. Joe Biden is the guy. He's been, you know, Wilmington's uh, Wilmington's own for decades. Right. The son and of Delaware. He, he put them on the map and. So the the next couple weeks, because it seems like things are kind of coming to a head, um, the next couple of weeks will be very interesting in that regard. Peter Ducey, I want to ask you about another thing that might be a little bit awkward because you mentioned Jen Psaki, the press secretary, your fun frenemy. And there is at least a very strong rumor, it's been now widely reported, that in the near future she will be joining us in the world of cable news. She will become a competitor of ours 
uh, over at another network. And yet, while those negotiations are reportedly underway, she is still speaking on behalf of the White House. I know it got a little bit awkward the other day with the NBC correspondent pressing her on this, her future colleague potentially on this, and it kind of went back and forth. What's the mood in the room about that? Because it is a little odd. It, If there is some arrangement like that, like what you just described, then it is a little odd. Um, but people have moved on in the last couple of days and just want to get their, their questions answered. And if she's the only one that they're going to send out to answer questions, then uh, people will ask about other stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, if she's made a deal and struck a deal with a news organization, I don't know how she would still be ethically the right person to go out and answer those questions on behalf of a president, on behalf of a White House. That's a choice that they're making. I guess journalists are making a choice to continue along with that arrangement, I suppose. Uh, Last question, Peter, yesterday, a very exciting day at the White House for many in the press corps and many Democrats. And, of course, there's a lot of crossover there. Barack Obama back at the White House. Was there a palpable excitement among journalists upon the return of their longtime crush? (laughs) You know, I don't know about among the journalists per se, but I have not heard Joe Biden get that kind of a prolonged standing ovation at an event. And, of course, He suffered from not being able to host things like that, like when he took office because of COVID. And I know there are these clips now circulating where everybody is around Obama. All the guests are trying to get Obama's attention, and the president is just kind of off to to the side. I would say, you know, more than that being an Obama thing, that is on some of the guests there. You got the president, Mm -hmm. the current president, standing right there. You can turn an inch and say hello. Yeah. No, I think I think that's fair. And as I said earlier, it kind of was a sad scene. I felt a little bad for him, but he is still the president of the United States. So not too bad. Right. He's still hosting events at the White House, which is uh, not a bad gig. Peter Ducey, White House correspondent at Fox News. Always appreciate it, sir. We'll talk again soon. Thanks a lot, Guy. Talk to you soon. You bet. The home stretch is next. Guy Benson will be right back. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show on this Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. GuyBensonShow.com, the podcast free on demand every single day. And here we are discussing a subject that we have not, I believe, we have not discussed before on the program. And that is fondue. I know this is a pressing issue. It was on all of your minds today. Why hasn't he talked about fondue yet? Uh, We were going to get there because we hit the important topics on this show, especially in this segment. Last night, Adam and I were at a birthday dinner for my best friend, Mary Catherine Ham. Her birthday was yesterday, so happy birthday, MKH. Very exciting. And this was organized by her husband. Her three daughters were there along with the woman who helps with the kids. And then our mutual friend, Kristen Soltis-Anderson. And we went to one of these chain restaurants that does fondue. It's called The Melting Pot. Have you been to A Melting Pot before? I went to one probably in high school. Maybe early college was the last time. So I knew the drill for the most part. It had just been, it had been a minute. And we had a lovely time. I just want to say the concept of a fondue restaurant 
is a little strange to me. And I'm not complaining. We had a lovely, slightly overwhelmed server named Ben because they were short-staffed because they are seemingly, based on what he was saying, sort of chronically short-staffed, as are many businesses right now. And one of Mary Catherine's little girls asked, are they all on vacation about his colleagues? And he said, they are not. And all the adults laughed. So he was very busy. He did a very good job. He brought everything on time. It was a handful. And I'm also not going to complain at all about melted cheese and dipping things in melted cheese. That's just a dream. I would do it much more often, as a matter of fact, if it weren't probably, I'm just guessing, not really very good for me. Because I thought it was going to be good. I was like, I'm going to just have the vegetables. Because for the cheese course, which is the first course, we got two different varieties of cheese. So they have two heating stations on this table with these pots that they bring in. We got one that was sort of like a Swiss raclette cheese combination with some nutmeg and a few other things and pepper. That was really good. And then and they, there was like a white wine base. And then we got a Wisconsin cheddar melt going. And there was a beer base to that one. Now, both delicious. And then they bring you these huge boards of things to dip into the hot melted cheese from a distance, these long skewer type things. And among the dipping items were apples and broccoli and carrots, peppers of various varieties, healthier stuff, right? The melted cheese is not going to be healthy, let's face it. But with veggies, it's sort of more acceptable, at least in my mind, slightly healthier. I can defend it more on a Tuesday night. The problem was the other dipping items offered were a wide array of breads. And this included pumpernickel. This included like fresh sliced up French bread and just some really good French bread on a skewer dipped into like an alpine mix of cheeses. How can you not just keep eating that? And then, most dangerous, they had little pieces of warm, soft pretzel, which go very well with the Wisconsin beer cheese, let's be honest. So my plan of going 90% veggies and maybe 10% bread did not succeed. It was probably about 50-50. Very delicious. Then comes a salad course, which was hilarious. I think no one goes to melting pot thinking, you know what? Salad is what I need today. Right? You just have to sort of check some of those concerns at the door. All right, fine. And then you order various proteins, and they bring out new pots that they put on the hot burners, and they pour in various mixtures, and it just kind of looks like bubbling scalding hot oil that you then cook your proteins in with your skewers. And they have a little sign, like a little guide on how long to cook different proteins. So I had my phone out and a stopwatch going, and I'm trying to keep track of everything, and they've got a bunch of sauces. It's just a whole production. I get the appeal of it. Mary Catherine's kids, I thought, were excited and entertained by all the things that were happening, although they were not really allowed to do 
the dipping because we didn't want them to hurt themselves and get burned. I would love to know the insurance policy at fondue restaurants because you are asking people to come in and pay money at a restaurant to then cook themselves on hot services sitting at the table. So you're going to get some potential issues that would arise in that setting that wouldn't arise in more traditional restaurants. I mean, there's also the question, is it really the way you want to spend an evening at a restaurant doing cooking? Like, to me, part of the appeal of a restaurant is to have someone else do the cooking for you. Now, granted, they do all the prep. They present it very appealingly. I am not criticizing it at all. And some people are big fans of fondue places, and it's like fun for the family or it's even romantic. Oh, we're doing this together. Oh, we've got our different skewers. I'll have a shrimp. Fine. It just was a fair amount of work is all I'm saying. And then when you're sort of doubting, was this a good idea? Because you've just had to work this entire mini kitchen in front of you. The chicken has to stay in longer, obviously, to cook than the steak. And if you forget that the steak's in there for a second, then that's going to overcook. I mean, there's moving parts. Then you're like, okay, is this really what I wanted out of a dinner? But then comes the chocolate. It's like the cheese course, but chocolate instead. And rather than vegetables and bread, it's fruit and, like, waffle product. There was Rice Krispie treats. There was Oreo-crusted marshmallows. There were brownies, blondies, and pound cake. And, of course, I was like, you know what? I'm going to be good and just do the fruit. I'll do banana pieces, which were really good, and I will do pineapple, and I will do strawberry. I'm going to avoid the blondies, the brownie, the Rice Krispie treats, and I did not, in fact, avoid any of those things. I avoided the waffles because you all know my position on waffles. I do not like waffles at all. So everyone else could have all the waffles they wanted. But uh, I indulge in the other stuff. We had two different varieties of chocolate as well. The pure milk chocolate, and there was another one with a caramel-type swirl in there and some, uh, some nuts as well in the mixture. That was really good. I think the most disturbing thing in terms of caloric intake from the experience was – you could never quite tell how much you were eating because the portions are all not traditional. That when you have an appetizer or a salad course, then a main course and a dessert, you can sort of see what's on your plate, decide how much of it to eat or all of it, and then you've kind of got a sense of how much you've eaten. With this, it was just so much movement happening all the time in a way that you're not used to. I don't really know how many calories... I took into my body last night at this dinner. And you know what? I'm not going to really think too hard about it. Maybe I'll do a slightly longer Peloton tonight. How about that? So that's my big uh, experience over at the Fondue restaurant for Mary Catherine Ham's birthday. Happy birthday to her. Extra workout for me. Christine, you a fondue gal or not really? I've been before and I've enjoyed it. Um, I am excited to tell you on Wednesday, it's called Friendship Day there. And you grab your besties and you get the best fondue friends forever menu. So I'm looking forward to sharing that special day with you. Oh, you're saying I'm the special friend. Of course. 
You're my best friend. Yeah, the only thing is I live in a different city, and so... You know what? I'll volunteer, Dan. How about that? Enjoy that, Dan. Enjoy your fondue with Christine. You're welcome, besties. I'm very excited for that. Yeah, can we get a fact check on that, Wyatt? Back here tomorrow for the Guy Benson Show, the Thursday edition coming your way from D.C. Have a great evening. We will talk to you then. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.